Hey guys, welcome back to the Phil Cross Survival Podcast. I'm your host, Mike, and uh, today's co-host is actually in California visiting his family. So Kurt won't be with us today, but I wanted to record an episode. It, it's due to a whole bunch of stuff that we've been, you know, have, have been going on and also some requests that I've gotten uh, that I want to um, honor because some of the topics are very important to me. And I think uh, more so now than ever, especially during the holidays, this kind of stuff uh, might help some people out there. So today's episode, we're actually going to do an episode on surviving manhood. And I know it's uh, it's like, what's manhood? Uh, I think the most relevant thing that's taking place in today's society is the displacement of the roles of families. And by default, um, there's a lot of people, men and women, who are lost in society, who are trying to figure out their purpose, trying to figure out their role, uh, really trying to find themselves. So I think, you know, I was asked this at the last, the last training course that me and Kurt did in Arizona with Courses of Action by a, a client and a good good man, a family man by the name of Danny. And he asked me, hey, you know, what, what are your experiences with your father? How did you come to have the mindset that you've had, um, how has that developed through your father? And what are things that I could do to be a better dad and better role model? So I hope you guys enjoy. All right, guys. So, you know, the topic is manhood. The reason I'm doing this episode is because I was asked, and I think it's really important. I mean, most often in DMs and emails and, you know, questions on advice, I get asked most often by men, what are some things that I could do to be a better man, to be a better soldier, a better husband, a better boyfriend? And mostly the people who engage me and thank me for, you know, words of inspiration or whatever are men, young men who are trying to figure their way out through life. Now, what was really cool about this last week was the seminar we did in Gilbert, Arizona, and I had a couple young men come up to me afterwards and say, you know, hey, you changed my perspective. I was in a dark place. Just your words alone gave me hope. And I even had a young woman who approached me and said the same thing that, you know, her her father was a military veteran who had PTSD and she helped pull him out of that dark, dark place with words uh, of encouragement, of advice uh, that we were putting out. And I don't know if it was for my personal account or for the company account, but I think this is very important. You know, I, it, number one, I'm humbled by that. It, it gives me a sense of purpose. It motivates me to wake up every day and to create content, create words and structure words so that somebody out there can um, use them as a tool to maybe uplift themselves. So it's, a, it's an important mission for me. Uh, but I think on top of that, the fact that there is a huge displacement of, you know, I always equate it to this technology that that's kind of saturating our lives, you know, whether it's in the workplace or whether it's in social media space where we're inundated with technology and we're kind of losing ourselves and our natural abilities to communicate, to have, you know, relationships that are meaningful. And we're, we're kind of getting detached from what we've been good at, which is communication, which is uh, knowing how to nurture, you know, the upbringing that I was brought up into, even even having separated parents is very different, very different than kids and young adults who are being brought up now today. You know, I, I see a lot of people who talk about, you know, in social media space, who talk about how, um, kind of awesome their lives are and how seemingly on the surface it seems that they have it all together. But I'll tell you that the reality is we're all broken. You know, there's there's different levels of it, obviously, but we're all hurting and we're all looking for purpose. We're all lost. You know, we have the benefits of a free society where you, we, we could say what we think. You know, we have the ability to communicate and to um, reach out to anybody in a couple, you know, movements of the hand 
throughout the world. You know, technology has obviously given us that that benefit and that tool, but it's also diluted our abilities to really understand the meaning of relationships, the meaning of uh, value and morality and all these other things. I was just recently talking to a buddy um, of mine and we were talking about, you know, men and role models. And this goes for women as well. You know, it's it's hard to look up or it's hard to find a role model in today's society because we're kind of inundated with Hollywood types that have a persona. You know, what, what a lot of people don't understand is if you see a personality, if you see a character, and it could be an actor, it could be an athlete. I mean, the, the way that you perceive them is a deliberate marketing process. It's a, it's, it's a marketing campaign. I mean, the bottom line is the way you see them isn't the way they typically are because it's all made to be part of a brand, you know, part of a uh, business. And so when your kids are growing up, when you're, when you're, you know, you're a young adult and you're just looking for mentors, I would encourage you to look in, you know, locally as opposed to online or on TV I would encourage you to look locally at somebody to use as a mentor because there's plenty of law enforcement, there's plenty of teachers, there's plenty of community leaders that make good mentors that you could aspire to be, um, that you could follow their practices and follow their routines and follow their mindset. You know, today on this episode, I'm going to give you some tips, some understanding and kind of my story and how I developed the mindset that I've had my entire life. And I hope that for people out there who are looking for uh, maybe inspiration or a different perspective or even a mentor, that maybe I could uh, fill that gap for you. So, you know, I was raised by a military man. My my dad, my father was in the army. Um, um, I was born at Fort Ord, California and near Monterey. And I was basically um, raised in a military environment where I understood men in uniform to be um, head, heads of households, dominant males. And I always had this um, part of me that wanted to be or wanted to, to serve in that kind of capacity or that kind of function because I was surrounded by it. You know, my dad and my mom and myself moved uh, to Germany where I was stationed for a period of time, where my dad was stationed for a period of time. And then eventually my parents separated and then I lived with my father really my entire young adult life uh, leading into my teens. And I remember distinctly uh, certain elements to his character that I took away as being uh, the way I should be. And I think as being a being a father, you know, I'm not a father, and you know, Kurt's a father. Um, I, I want to be a father, but I'm, I'm not a father, so I'm taking take this from the advice of somebody who kind of perceives what a father should be like. I will tell you that I thought my dad was the one of the best dads a child could have because of his character. Uh, I remember my father being compassionate and kind. Uh, I don't remember him being. Uh, mean-spirited or angry or ever kind of ever ever deflecting anger or frustration that 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 was apparent that I saw in work or personal relationships he never uh, deflected that onto me as his only son and I was always tucked into bed I always I was always kissed goodnight I was always told um, more often than not you know bedtime stories and there was this nurturing of, of me that I think was the bond or the, uh, an important aspect to my personality or my character that made me who I, who I was. And I think what that, um, what that was instilled was compassion. You know, I remember my father stopping to help animals on the side of the road because, you know, they were defenseless. And I remember my dad helping his friends even friends that I understood to be 
not very good people, he would help and he would never say no. You know, that was his, his thing that, you know, one of his weaknesses is that he would never say no because he's, he always wanted to help. And I also remember that he was very good to his mother, to my grandmother, uh, Elizabeth. And all these things um, made him who he was, but made me realize who I wanted to be. I remember when I was young and I used to get bullied by this kid named Scott. And it was probably around elementary school time period. I don't know. It was before I was 10 years old. I remember that. And me and my dad lived in an apartment complex. And I used to come home, you know, beat up. And I remember this one significant time I came home and I walked in and I was crying. And my dad asked me what was wrong. And I said, Scott had bullied me. I think Scott had punched me in the stomach. And he told me, you know, son, you have to defend yourself. I don't want you to come in this house and cry over not defending yourself. You, you have to defend yourself. And I remember he told me to leave and go outside and find Scott and work things out. And so I remember it distinctly what happened. I, I, got, I actually got tangled up with Scott again. And I remember defending myself because he was trying to bully me again. And I wound up kneeing him in the nose and making him bleed, actually. And, you know, I'm not condoning violence. Uh, I'm not saying that's the right tactic. But in a defense sense, I was taken up for myself from getting beat up. So I was reacting to violence with violence, which is which is necessary. Um. So I need him in his nose and I made him bleed and I had blood on my pants. And I remember I came home feeling accomplished, feeling proud that I actually defended myself. And I remember I walked in and my dad looked at me and he's like, why are you so happy? And I said, oh, I just, you know, I, I beat up Scott and he saw the blood on my knee. And I remember he dragged me over to Scott's mom's house to make sure I apologized. But uh, he was proud of me. You know, it, he was. He was proud that I finally stood up for myself. And, and that was a pivotal moment in my life, you know, believe it or not, uh, which was a point in which I felt like I defended a value or something that I believed in, which was, um, you know, defending oneself, self-defense, right? I also remember an incident where I had, there was a girl who used to bully me and she used to call me all these you know, Chinese names. And at the time, you know, I remember in kindergarten wearing cowboy boots, Harley Davidson t-shirts because my dad and my uncle were both Harley fans and not even realizing what race I was. I didn't realize I was Asian. I thought I was just a white kid like everybody else. It's not like I was looking in the mirror every day and checking myself out and coming to this self-realization of who I was. But I thought I was just like every other kid. You know, kids at that age, are just supposed to be kids. Um, you know, something on that is kids nowadays can't get away from that, right? Because you know, you used to, we used to go to school and deal with the bullies, deal with the issues, and then go home, and then you get a period of rest. It's like your safe place. Well, kids can't get away, and they don't have a safe place because they go home, and then on Facebook and on Instagram and on all these media outlets, they're being bullied, they're being picked on. And, and it's tough for kids that they're inundated with it. They're, they're immersed in it. Well, anyways, I remember this girl used to pick on me and she used to call me these names and she would spit at me and she would uh, ride her bike around me. And I remember she was riding her bike across the street and I picked up a rock and I chucked this thing across two lanes of, of traffic. And I remember it hit her in her head, the side of her head. And she fell off her bike after she was yelling at me like ching chong, ching chong, which I think is comical now, obviously. Um, I'm like the whitest Asian dude you'll ever meet. But I, that took place and that happened and it knocked her off her bike. And she ran home, obviously, and I ran inside and I didn't say a word. I didn't want to say anything. And I was just trying to play it cool. But I remember her parents knocked on the door. My dad asked what happened and I kind of tried to play it off. But obviously, I couldn't lie about it. And my dad said, he's going to handle it. And he shut the door and he's like, what the hell did you do? And I told him exactly what happened. He said, um, I'm proud of you, but I, I don't want you to, uh, 
to do anything like that to inflict violence. I want you to defend yourself, and that's more important. So I learned a whole bunch about compassion and about defending myself leading into my years in middle school. And I tell this story often, but I remember I make fun of it and say it's my first contract job, but I remember beating up bullies in middle school. I remember kids wanting to pay me. I remember specifically this one kid trying to pay me his lunch money if I would go handle these bullies that were picking on him. And I I was a loner in school. I, I never rolled with a crew or a group or, you know, you couldn't even categorize me into any group. You know, I played sports, so I, I was a jock, I guess, but I didn't hang around the jocks because I liked the nerds. You know, I, I was a nerd inside my head. And so I, I didn't really fit into any one specific crowd. Every, everybody, I guess Asians are the, the neutral race, but I didn't fit in any one specific crowd. So I was kind of a loner. But I remember I had a distaste and really a compassion for defending the weak. I remember any time there was somebody who was getting picked on, uh, I was there and trying to help. I remember specifically in second grade, Miss Miss Stahl's class. I remember uh, the teacher used to throw out candy at the kids, which if you've ever been to Afghanistan or been to Iraq and been to war and you're throwing kids the candy, you know immediately that's a bad idea. But I remember she used to throw it out at the kids and in a classroom and kids would go down and try to get the candy. And I remember she did this once and she had left the classroom. And as she left the classroom, there was this bully who obviously was raised the wrong way, who was snatching candy out of little girl's hands. And that was devastating. I remember seeing that and saying something to him. I was like, hey, man, give her that candy. And I'm in second grade. You know, I don't know how old kids are in second grade, six, seven, eight. But I remember telling him that. And he's like, what are you going to do about it? And he stood up and remember, he pushed me. And then the next thing you know, we're in a fight. And I wound up whipping on this dude's butt. The teacher came in and snatched us both up and took us to the principal's office. And I remember the teacher went back to the classroom after asking us what happened and asked the children what happened. And all the kids had said, Mike was defending this little girl and this boy was bullying her. And then uh, that other boy had started it. And I remember how proud I felt to be the one to, to defend the weak. But not only that, but to be recognized by others. You know, I don't think it was an ego, e- egotistical thing. I think it was a, hey, I was just doing what I had to do. But the fact that people took up for me and it, 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 I felt like these kids were part of a, a part of my tribe, like, I remember the way they looked at me when I walked back in, like, man, this, this kid or this guy or Mike is somebody who defends what's right at all costs. And, you know, this is an early, kind of the early onset of what I think all men or all boys are looking for. And that's a sense of belonging, a sense of this tribe thing that, you know, Sebastian Younger talks about in his book, Tribe, and that we've discussed is that kids don't have a, a tribe to belong to. And if you look throughout history at, at culture, especially warrior cultures, uh, that's something that's inherent and in kind of like the stabilization of a lot of societies or civilizations that men belong to something. And that included uh, morality and value and uh, bravery and courage. And so kids are looking for that at a long, uh, at a young age. You see it, you know, in the, in the wrong sides of it in gangs and, you know, cliques. Uh, I remember in high school, kids used to band together when they belonged to the same neighborhood and they would fight other kids from other neighborhoods. And it's just a natural kind of segregation that takes place of kids wanting to find a group of like-minded individuals and defend something because they want to feel something in life. They're looking for that purpose. You know, I don't think kids understand, you know, defending Bunce Road and Fayetteville, North Carolina isn't exactly a noble cause, but it's a cause that they feel um, they have a sense of purpose because they're missing something in their lives. I mean, more kids today, more so than ever before, 
are growing up with single parents um, and those single parents displaced with making a living in work um, don't afford a lot of mentorship and a lot of parenting, a lot of good parenting to kids. And they wind up on the streets. They wind up in the streets. You know, when I when I think about all the things that I've been through as a child and what kind of uh, set me up for success leading into the military, um, a lot of it was my my independence of wanting to do things on my own. I was fiercely independent. When I was uh, 13, 14, I started living with my mom for a few years before I joined the military. And I remember at one point, where school wasn't challenging me enough, I decided to drop out. You know, I had been going to summer school early and I I didn't feel like, number one, I didn't like the kids I went to school with uh, wholeheartedly. Uh, high school was a horrible experience because I hated the gossiping, the drama, all the BS. Even at that age, I knew I wanted to learn and I felt like I wasn't learning anything and I just needed to get out of that environment and really do something for myself. And it was kind of me venturing off on my own, uh, you know, say in the military, FTX, full training exercise, kind of doing my own thing. So when I was 16, I remember my mom kicking me out of the house because I wouldn't go to school. I refused to go to school. You know, I told her I wanted to go away and be on my own. So she sent me on a bus packing and uh, sent me to go live with my dad. And that's what I did. You know, my dad growing up, through, through all my years in life, same with my mom, we never lived, uh, I mean, we were lower middle class. I mean, me and my dad lived in a, a mobile home, you know, in, in my room, in my, in the trailer, I could literally almost touch every wall that was in my room with my feet and my hands. It was that small, but it was enough for us to sustain, to live. And I always believe in working hard. So I had a job. I worked at a place called Dockside Imports in Daytona Beach, Florida, and I worked at a Burger King across the street from the Speedway. But, you know, he couldn't handle me either. My dad couldn't. He didn't want to pull up with my BS, and I was a difficult teenager. Um, he made me live with my grandma. And I remember I was, as I was living with my grandma, I didn't want to burden her, so I decided I wanted to live, live alone. So I actually ran away from my grandma's house. My grandma says I'm the only grandson that gave her a Dear John letter. Because I basically wrote her a letter telling her how much I love her and respect her and didn't want to burden her. So I, I ran away and lived on my own. I lived actually in a motel efficiency at the age of 16 going into 17 and um, made my own way. Which felt which felt for me um, like a sense of purpose in life. It, it made me feel independent, made me feel proud that I was earning my own keep. And, you know, I, I was going to school. Uh, on the side trying to finish school. I was going to Daytona Beach Community College and getting my high school equivalent because at that time before they changed the rules, you can get your high school diploma, not your GED, but your diploma. And I was talking to a recruiter and getting set up to uh, go into the Army. I remember one time, you know, I had to make a commute from the motel, which was on the riverside or the inlet side, and I had to make a bike ride. Usually it was a, a couple-hour bike ride. And so I started taking the bus and I remember, you know, I was sitting on a park bench in my little dockside imports, you know, collared shirt, a little weight belt because I used to uh, load boxes and do shipping stuff. And I remember a Jeep full of kids drove by me and they threw a, a Wendy's Frosty out of the window and it landed in my lap. And I just sat there and I remember looking at them. They were laughing and joking as they drove by. And they called me some cuss words. And I, I had this Frosty sitting in my lap. And it was pretty early morning. So, you know, there wasn't a lot of people around. So I just sat there for a second. And I kind of contemplated and reflected on everything. And again, that's, a, you know, it's these little moments that were impactful moments for me. Where I realized just how uh, selfish and how jacked up some people were in life. And, you know, I could have stood up. I could have cussed. I could have went berserk or bananas, but I didn't do anything. I just took the cup and I kind of like just wiped the the, uh, um, the frosty off of me. And I just thought to myself how disappointing, you know, humanity had been for me at that point. 
you know, when you lose touch with humanity, when you have, when you're disappointed in your fellow man, you know, it makes you think a lot about what you want to do in life, you know, and you could sit there and, you know, in a sobering moment like that and just get down on yourself, get down on everybody and hate, hate life and hate people. But I decided at that moment that I wanted to do something bigger with my life. And I told the recruiter that day, actually, that I wanted to join the military and I wanted to serve. And I was 17 years old. You know, when I decided to join the army, uh, I think it was one of the best things that I could possibly do because as a young male looking for purpose, looking for something bigger than myself, looking for camaraderie and brotherhood, something that I never had as an only child. Um, You know, I had some great cousins, some great people growing up, but I just didn't have that sense of belonging. The military filled that gap. You know, I I honestly owe the military everything because it it provided me a a roof over my head, a paycheck, uh, food on the table. But more so than anything, it it gave me... um, this adventure that I never thought I'd be part of. And it gave me this kind of structured open terrain, right? It's imagine open terrain surrounded by borders. That's like hunger games. You know, it's like this, this broad area to be able to shine and do my best. You know, the motto back in the, in the day was be all you could be in the U S army. And I remember that motto and thinking, hell, I could do anything I want to. And there's so many opportunities, so many different things that you could do in the military, whether it was being a sniper or going to all these high-speed schools or going special forces, deploying, you know, seeing and doing the, the most, um, the, you know, the most insane things that I never imagined that I'd do. And I was getting paid to do it. So I, I truly owe the, the army, um, for setting me up for that. And I, I kind of use that analogy, you know, that be all you could be, uh, be all you could be because, you know, in the civilian life, you're also afforded the same opportunity with a hundred times more opportunities. I mean, if you use the, the terrain uh, uh, analogy, it's kind of like looking at a local town and the borders and saying, you know, I can accomplish a lot in this town. You know, I could work at the bank. I could work at the local market. Uh, hell, I could run for governor, as opposed to looking at a you know a, a broader picture, you know where you could say, "Damn, I could do anything I want in the world. I could travel abroad. Uh, I could start a nonprofit." You know, in the civilian sector, there's so many opportunities for you outside of the military. Um, I think a part of the uh, problem a lot of veterans have um, coming back from that structure is they're used to localized structures, something that's confined, something that's safe. Even in war zones, it's safe. But then when they get out and they're faced with the open desert that is life, that is the civilian world, it can be intimidating. Um, but, you know, what I, you know, wrapping up that um, military section of my life, I will say that if you're looking for purpose, if if you're looking for a challenge, if you're looking for structure, camaraderie, brotherhood, all these things that I talk about, the military is a good start point because you know, you don't have to be in such a rush to get everything established and worked out. You know, I have a I have a good friend of mine and she's going through a dilemma where she's faced with all these opportunities, but she's being driven in a direction because of her parents, because of her peers of what she specifically needs to do to be successful. So they define the success for her. And for me, life and success isn't always measured in your career, in your income bracket, in your education. More so than that, it's, it's measured in your, uh, your happiness, your fulfillment of your purpose, and the ones that you surround yourself with your family, your friends, your spouse. Those are more important than than any career that could bring you any amount of money. You know, you have to ask yourself, you know, kind of like the montage. I use the montage because, you know, Team America made a funny montage moment where you reflect on everything, right? You add a cool, cool uh, song to it. 
if if you take your life and you montage it and you add some cool music to it and you think about where you'll be you know hey you'll go to school you'll go to school for an additional 3 4 years you'll be a physical therapist and then where will you be you'll be in an office you'll be working for a department or an institution and you'll be a physical therapist and you know a physical therapist is a great job and if that's what your dream is that's what your goal or objective is and at the end of that you can montage the moments where you wake up at six in the morning you get at work at seven you know you have a cup of coffee you start your business day or your work day at eight you do physical therapy with the elderly with the sick with soldiers with whoever and then you come home and then you do it again and again and again and that's your ideal situation that will make you happy, then go for it. But if there's more to you, more to the situation uh, that's your life, you might want to rethink whether you're prioritizing your life in the right fashion or or the reason you're prioritizing it that way is because of somebody else's influence that isn't necessarily aligned with your mission, with your end state. And so... You know, when I talk about manhood, you know, I talk about some things that are very important to me that I've realized um, that are highlights or definitive kind of elements to manhood, uh, specifically to my situation. The first one I want to talk about is purpose. You know, I call these the pillars of manhood. You know, purpose is defined as kind of the end objective of what you want to do in life that fulfills you, that satisfies you, that makes you who you are. You know, women can say uh, it's having babies, having children. It's being a successful career woman. It's being independent. Men can say the same. And you ask yourself, what is your purpose? And if you could truly tell yourself that you are fulfilling, meaning You don't have to have fulfilled your purpose, right? You don't have to have accomplished the mission. But if you're working towards that objective, that brings uh, true happiness in slivers of moments in time, right? Your life isn't going to be objectively happy all the time. You're not going to be, this life is great. Every day I wake up and you're super motivated. I don't do that. And And I feel like I have a very good life. But when you're working towards a goal or a purpose that you understand to be the purpose that you want to fulfill in life, uh, your satisfaction with that life is going to be greater. For example, if you want to help people and that's the grander purpose that you see, the grander mission, well, you could work a nine to five. You could work in your cubicle. You could work your desk job. And then on the sides, because you're building enough capital to help people, you're working towards that goal and developing that nonprofit or volunteering on the side or being a mentor for, for children. And so what I, what I will tell you is you have to clearly define that purpose and set your goals, meaning set your subtask or your object, your many objectives or goals to accomplish that purpose. You know, one could be, Hey, registering that nonprofit, you know, developing the network for that nonprofit and work that on the side. You know, luckily for me, I'm in a position where teaching survival by default has given me opportunities and current opportunity to help people. You know, we help people with nonprofits, Global Star Teen Adventures. Well, I've been able to help teammates. I've been able to do volunteer work, to offer free seminars, to do these things that give me purpose. Sure, making money is great. Sure, waking up with a mission that's specific, that I'm passionate about is great. But more so than that, my overall purpose in life is to help people. I want to help people in mindset and physical ability and skill sets to be better prepared. And that's my my purpose. So however I can fulfill that is going to bring me greater satisfaction in my overall life. The next consideration, the next pillar that I'll talk about is being a protector. Now, being a protector can be gauged or seen in a lot of different senses. 
But I think if you're a man like me, you you have this sense about you that you want to defend the weak. You want to defend your spouse, your family, your friends. You don't want to do it. You know, I'm not telling you that like having this macho attitude of like, I'm going to kick everybody's ass. That's not what I'm talking about. What I mean is being a protector is being a good steward and defender of not just physical threats, which typically we think about that, you know, shielding threats, self-defense, et cetera. But you have to be a good protector of kind of the sanctity of the values that are important um, in your life. For example, uh, the sanctity of a relationship. You know, that's that's a marriage term, right? When you're, when you're protecting the sanctity of something. But it's important in the values outside of marriage inside of your relationship with family and friends that you protect that, that you not be the person who's two-faced, who's talking behind somebody's back, that, uh, you know, that defends uh, the wronged. You know, one thing I've always done is I've always tried to be, be a good man <coughs> and not talk about people who aren't present behind their back. Or if I do talk about somebody to somebody else getting a, a broader perspective, I, I let them know that, hey, I've already told that person uh, to their face exactly how I feel. You know, so being a protector is being an honest broker to family, to friends, to loved ones. You know, I've been criticized in my past from family, from friends, from loved ones that I'm too blunt. You know, I get that really from my mom. My mom is uh, a very open and honest person. So there's there's goods and there, there's pros and there's cons, right? The pros is you always know what to expect. There's not this underlined uh, deception and smoke and mirrors and mask of deception that, that that's going to lead you uh, to manifest your own thoughts because she's going to tell you exactly how she feels. And I always took that as very important in my life and understanding how I communicate to friends and the family. Yes, you have to be tactful. And that's, you know, out of all the flaws that I have, which are many, uh, one of them is I, I'm not very tactful in communicating my feelings for others or my criticism for others. I'm pretty blunt. You know, I've been around friends, um, associates that have told me that, you know, hey, I would never tell my friend that. Like, I, how could you ever tell your friend something like that? You know, or, hey, my friend told me this and I say, hey, did you say anything to them? Like, no, why would I say that? No, no, I'll let them work out their own issues. And to me, that's not being a friend. That's not being a protector of someone's uh, loved ones or relationships. To me, when you love somebody, you tell them bluntly the realities and truths of what's going on in their life. If somebody's doing something wrong, uh, and it, and I don't agree with it, I'm telling them how I feel and giving them broader perspective. Yeah, they don't have to listen to me. That's, you know, that's everybody's right. But I'll never hide that fact. You know, the great thing about special operations and the brotherhood I grew up in is that for the most part, we're, we're honest brokers in the realities and truths that we speak. You know, I know that Kurt, despite him working for me, if, if he saw something that was disturbing or saw something in my behavior or the way I acted or the way uh, that I did something, he would confront me. And I would expect that just like he would expect that from me. And so, you know, if I was in a relationship with somebody, friends, family, I would expect them to do the same thing to me. You know, I want to be confronted with people who just aren't shaking their head and saying, yeah, I agree. I want them to challenge me. I want them to question me. Uh, that's, that's, that's what personal growth is about. And that's what making uh, other people in your tribe better is all about. So it's not just protecting or defending physically, but it's more uh, defending the sanctity of relationships. Uh, that's the most important thing to do. You know, be loyal. Be loyal to the tribe, but be loyal to yourself. You know, be honest in standing up for the values that you hold dear and near to your heart.
All right, the next pillar of manhood that I talk about is compassion. You know, I say it's pillar of manhood. It doesn't have to be pillar of manhood. This just happens to be on surviving manhood, but it could be pillars of life. Compassion is the most important element to me in life. You know, I, I've heard, I've been criticized because they say, oh, you're, you're too compassionate. You know, we don't need compassion in our life. That's the problem. That's the reason, I guess, diplomatically or situationally, we've been in some um, weird, weird situations that have turned out to be uh, compounded into worse situations. And I want to be clear about this. There's a difference between uh, compassion and the aggression that, that's needed in warfare and speed, surprise, and violence of action. There is a stark contrast, right? And so I know when to segregate or separate um, the fight versus compassion. What I mean is you have to be compassionate about life in general um, and, and try to have a more optimistic instead of pessimistic take on the life that you're living. And, and you know, I'm... I can tell you right now, j just speaking about recent situations that have took place in my life in the last couple or last few weeks, that I'm not always good at that, that I'm always striving, obviously, at these pillars. I try to live an optimistic life. You know, I, I want to be positive about life because I know living in the reality that I've lived in special operations, that life can get worse. You could be that wife getting that phone call that your husband was just killed in action. You could be the child of that father who lost his life overseas. You could be, you know, the, the wife of a husband that just got diagnosed with stage four cancer. So I, I try to be optimistic and look at life and, and be positive. One thing that I've always determined that separates good men from great men is their ability to have compassion for people, for life, for animals, for situations, to not overreact with anger, to not overreact with fear. You know, anger is a, a symptom of a broader uh, element, which is insecurity and fear. When you're scared, when you're fearful, when you're insecure that things aren't going to work out the way they should, uh, usually anger is the way that you show it. So having compassion to really understand emotion and understand that not everybody on this planet is going to react or act the way that you do. You know, something that I even wrote it down recently is my dad, when he wanted to tell me he loved me, he always told me, you know, it could, been, it could have been out of anywhere. That's something that I've always took note in, you know, whether it's, you know, bringing in, bringing in a loved one and telling them I love, love them or putting my hand on a friend's shoulder that needs um, to be taken care of because they're going through a tough time. If you feel an emotion Show the emotion. You know, there's nothing macho about being a man who, who's not in touch or not able to communicate emotion. Now, I'm not the best communicator in emotion. I'll tell you that right now because I get excited. You know, my mom always told me I had a kimchi temper, and I do. I have a, I have a temper. You know, uh, people call it anger. I call it passion. Uh, the reality is I'm not perfect in that sense because I do get excited because I'm very emotional. Everybody who knows me I'm, I'm emo knows I'm emotional. Am, am I the kind of emotional guy who's frantic and freaking out? Not really. Um, but I'm a guy who's passionate about uh, my beliefs and about defending others. So I'll get rowdy. I'll get loud if I have to. You know, the, the balance is being a person who, when you feel something, let's say you're sitting with your girlfriend. And you look at her and in and, and, and that reflection, you go, man, she's just a great woman. And I'm so happy to have her. Don't be afraid to say that out loud. 
You're going about your your day and you're thinking about your mother and you're thinking about how great of a mother she is because of a, a, a situation that might have made you think about that. Don't be afraid to pick up the phone and call that person. You know, you might have a situation where you're angry with somebody. You're going through a tough time. You haven't talked to somebody and you have gone, uh, gone through ups and downs. Don't be afraid to pick up that phone. And, and you know, people want to look at that as like, I'm being weak. They associate showing emotion with being weak. I would rather be weak than suppress that emotion and then be looked at as somebody who's not compassionate. Because I know I'm compassionate. I know I have empathy and humility for people. So don't be afraid to show that. I remember the first time um, I realized what compassion was. I was in first grade. I was actually in Miss Griffin's class in Daytona Beach, Florida. I went to South Daytona Elementary School. And we we were based out of a a a mobile or trailer home kind of uh, school. It was a portable. They called it a portable, right? And so we spent six, seven hours in this portable learning with Miss Griffin. And I remember we had a girl. Her name was Liesel. And Liesel was handicapped. And I don't remember the handicapped. I remember she had uh, leg braces and she had problems all the time with pain. And she often cried. And it, and it, kind of, it broke my heart even as a first grader. As a young six-year-old boy, I remember one time there was a thunderstorm and there was lightning. And, you know, in Daytona Beach, Florida, we used to get some crazy storms. And I remember we were in school in this portable and the portable was shaking back and forth and Liesl started crying. And I remember another girl in that class, her name was Christine Christofferson. And I remember Christine and me looked at each other and we didn't have to say anything. We immediately walked over to Liesl. And we put our hands on her and we told her, you're going to be okay. You're going to be okay. It's okay. And she was crying. And Miss Griffin saw this. And I remember her saying she was proud of us. And she consoled Liesl until the storm had passed. And I remember Liesl looked at us in a different eye, in a different way. She recognized that we were compassionate. And whenever she had issues, she would go to, to me and Christine and talk about her issues. I was in first grade. First grade realizing what compassion was. The opportunities for you to show comp- compassion on a daily basis are many. Many. You don't have to run into a stranger who's going through a difficult time in order to show compassion. You don't have to have an audience or people watching you in order for you to show compassion. You could pick up your phone, you could text, you could DM, you could, you could pick up the phone and call and talk. You could drive your car and meet and show compassion with people in your life that you've shunned because of your own, your own issues, your own anger, all these things that are dealt, dealt with in insecurity and fear. You know, I think ultimately, and manhood, you know, and I associate this with purpose, you have to have a vision in your life. You have to have an understanding of what you want to accomplish. You know, life is really complex. You know, if when people say it's so simple, it's not always that simple when you're trying to put food on the table, when you're trying to raise a son, when you're trying to do all these things together and they compound themselves and in your dealing or managing stress on a daily basis, it, it could be difficult. But you have to have a broader vision outside of those difficulties in order to keep yourself sane. Your vision is a fantasy. It's a dream. But it's something that can keep you focused and keep you motivated to continue to push and realize that what you're doing is for a reason and is for a purpose. You know, it's our choice to be optimistic about our lives and our future. It's up to us to determine our fate. You know, this is a a 50-minute episode on manhood. It covered a lot of topics. 
You know, I, I really hope that somebody somewhere listens to this and it helps you. You know, on Thanksgiving, which is by the time you hear this might be Thanksgiving, it might be a day after. I'm not doing anything, but, but you know, it's me and Pearl. But I plan to volunteer somewhere to help somebody um, to offer my time. To offer um, my communication, my empathy, my humility, my compassion for somebody to make somebody's day better. You know, being a man is not about uh, anything revolving around an ego. It's not about the car you drive, about the cologne you wear, the clothes you wear, your social status. None of that shit matters. What really matters is what kind of man you are underneath the surface. I'm working on a daily basis to to better myself and to be uh, a better servant uh, for everybody that's involved in my tribe. To be to be more godly. To instill values, but to live those same values. And I hope, and I pray on this Thanksgiving that you dig deep and that you search for that purpose and that meaning and you seek, whether you're a man or a woman, to do the same. Until next time, stay alert, stay alive.